Yesterday was a good day. Being able to think about the way that God is using us and how he wants to use us. Many Christians do not engage culture or the people around them uh, for several reasons. Number one, they don't know how. Now, what do you say to somebody that's very antagonistic to the Lord? Or what do you say to somebody that you've just met? How do you engage? And that's one of the things that we talk about in the Colson Fellows Program. And because we don't know how, we don't have confidence. And so we avoid that and don't even think about it, actually. Rather than constantly being aware that God has me in this time and in this place for a reason. And is there somebody in this room, somebody in this bus, somebody you know, that maybe God wants me to encourage, to bless, have a word with? And that kind of an attitude, just think if every Christian did that and became sensitive to the word and the leading of God, what, what would happen? What would happen? People are more ready than you would ever believe. They really are. And if we're kind and winsome and gracious, it's powerful. It really, really is. So I want to talk about this cultural moment. We use this phrase a lot at the Colson Center because it's important. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul was talking about the history of God working through the world. And he comes to David. And in verse 36 of Acts 13, he says this. He says, and David who served the purposes of God for his generation, fell asleep when he died. And isn't that a beautiful way? I want to serve the purposes of God in, in my generation, and that is in my time. I can't do what I did 15 years ago. I know a lot of youth pastors who are so ineff- who were effective then and not, are not effective now. And they say, well, these kids these days, I tell you what, all they want is their smartphone, you know. What is TikTok anyway, you know? And what's happened is, yeah, culture has changed, but he or she hasn't. And the Apostle Paul, we're going to talk about this later this afternoon. The Apostle Paul says, I make myself a slave to everyone that I may win the more. And that means it's about them. It's not about me. It's about him. It's not about me. It's, and I'm the conduit for all of that, you see. So this cultural moment, Mark Dury did such a great job giving us some insight into the lies. And one of the things I was going to do, I, I don't have time though, is to take each of those lies and show you how they arise from the worldviews that we talked about. I'll get to it a little bit here, but all of those things just arise because the lies, that's one of the reasons why we sing and worship, is to remind us of what the true narrative is, not the false narrative. Yeah. So with that in mind, I, I want you to think about this. Number one, this remote is not working. <laughs> there we go. My bad. I love this phrase, to ignite hope. In fact, the Colson Fellows, Colson Center mission statement starts with these two words, ignite hope. I like the word ignite, not just to give, but to ignite, that is, among people. Because if there's anything that our world needs now, it's, it's hope. I mean, it's there, they just don't know it. And when they latch into that, it changes, changes everything. So we ignite hope. 
In fact, great passage here. Mm. All right. Ah, oh, these are American batteries. No wonder. I don't know why we're not working here, guys. Yeah. Um, go ahead and uh, can you do it from back there? Can you push a button? Evidently, you can. All right. Note, may the God of hope. I love the fact that he refers to himself many times as the God of hope. Fill you with what? What? Joy and peace as you trust him. So that, here's the reason, you may overflow with hope. Now, the God of hope wants to fill you with joy and peace so that you overflow with hope by the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, some of the prayers that we find by Paul, he talks about, now I'm praying that God's going to give you power. He's going to kick out the walls of your life so that you can understand. You've got more capacity to understand his love. Isn't that fascinating? You need power in order to understand his love. So, are we good, do you think? Okay. So, oh. That's backwards, though. That's all right. Well, no, that's all right. Never mind. Okay. Huh? Gosh. All right, our time's about up. Um, William Butler Yeats was a poet. He's a politician, Irish. One of the great poets of the late 19th and early 20th century. After World War II, he was giving some insights in his own life. If you remember after World War I, excuse me, after World War I, we entered into the phase known as the Lost Generation. All the youth were just devastated by the atrocities of World War I. The war to end all wars, if only that had been true. And as he saw the world dissembling around him after the war, you thought there would be great joy because the peace had come. But things were falling apart. And this is this, uh, one of his most well-known poems. It's, it's, not, it's not a long poem. But notice what he says here. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. The blood-dimmed tide is loose. And everywhere, the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Sounds like today, doesn't it? And it's true, the center doesn't hold. That is, God at the center, Christus Nexus, Christ at the center, doesn't hold in a world that turns its back on him. And in this cultural moment, we find ourselves, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in just, uh, in just a second. In Dostoevsky's uh, book, The Brothers Karamazov, I'm sure you've all read it, it's only 800 pages. <laughs> no, it's not that long. Dostoevsky was an incredible believer, as you know. He and Tolstoy both. In fact, once when I was in Russia, um, I was talking to some of the military guys, and they were telling me that there was a, uh, there was a 
this revival among the military in Russia. And this is, gosh, a number of years ago. And I said, how can you have a revival? You don't have Bibles. And he smiled and said, ah, oh, yes, but we have Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And if you read the short stories of, of Tolstoy and even in the novels of Dostoevsky, it's just filled with gospel. It's just filled with gospel. But in the Brothers K, he says, um, one of the sons, it, I won't tell you the whole plot because it's rather uh, overwhelming, but he says here that um, it's good to be without God. It's good not to believe in heaven. Therefore, you can just be yourself. You don't have to worry. And his brother replies, without God in the future life, it means everything is permitted. One can do anything. Very perceptive statement. There's no God, then there are no criteria to follow. There are no barriers. There's no laws. There's no morality guiding guarding us. So when we look at our culture today, and I include Australia with the U.S., but we are so similar. Everything Mark Dury said yesterday, we're experiencing in the United States. So there. Um, but the reality is, as we look at the world, it hasn't changed a whole lot. Because look at when this was written. You know? And the things that keep us uh, away from God, the things that cause the culture to turn away from God just really hasn't changed because it's the human heart sin. C.S. Lewis points out, though, this. We shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something else even more. And you know what that is? We follow Christ. So what I'm going to say is that we have, um, I've been involved in worldview teaching and thinking and writing and all that for 30 years, since I was four. And so... <laughs> But, and so have there have been so many worldview organizations and apologetics groups and so on and so forth. And you think the church would be better equipped than we are. And we're worse off. What's happened? And so what I'm basically saying is we're doing it wrong. Because our focus is the civilization. Our focus is the culture. Our focus is the society. We're going to beat you. We're going to beat you down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if not, you're going to hell. Drop the mic, walk out of the room, we win. That's not how it works. C.S. Lewis reminded us that when we engage culture to see culture change, we're really following after Christ. Amen. And that's a byproduct of following after Christ. Yeah. So many, so many people, and I'm going to quote this several times, so many people get so wrapped up in their apologetics ministry and their worldview ministry, they forget God. They forget Christ. It becomes about them or it becomes about winning the argument, it becomes about the methods and so on. When God is looking for people to be, to, to be used by him to serve, it's people after his heart. Because there the spiriting powers us and overflows into the people around us so that hope ignites. So that hope ignites. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning in, in a, a roundabout way. Because I think it helps us as we think out loud about how God is leading us. And The Great Divorce, as I mentioned, is one of my favorite, probably my favorite C.S. Lewis book. He mentioned this. You've heard me say this before. There have been men before who got so interested in proving the existence of God that came to care nothing for God himself. 
as if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. There have been some who were so preoccupied with spreading Christianity, they never gave a thought to Christ. It's true. It's true. So, how do we engage this cultural moment? And I said, I think we're doing it wrong. If we focus more on the spiritual growth, I mean, it's like we need to be equipped. Okay. And in fact, we need to amp that up. But if it's to the exclusion of growing in Christ, then we are really missing the point. If it's to the exclusion of discipleship of individuals that follow Christ, we're doing it wrong. And so I think what's happening, it's one of the reasons why we do what we do at the Colson Center. Like in the Colson's Fellows Program, you have daily devotionals to grow in Christ, to understand the Word of God and what God is doing. You're reading, this year they're reading Bonhoeffer, who wrote that incredible book. What's the title of the book? Cost of Discipleship. Cost of Discipleship, written in the shadow of Adolf Hitler, written in the shadow of Nazi Germany, talking about faithfulness to Christ, sacrifice to Christ. And of course, he himself, Bonhoeffer, was murdered, executed by the Nazis. And before he was hanged, he got on his knees and gave thanks to God. Amazing. So let's do it right. Well, let's try to do it right. We're, we're sinful people. But let's start thinking out loud about some things. Um, I'm going to leave these PowerPoints, by the way, again, as you can get it, because I know a lot of you are going to try to write this down. If you want to take photographs, that's all right. Just let me know. My best side. You can get that. Okay. But looking back at the last few decades, dominated by modernism and postmodernism, and now where we are, we have postmodernism kind of segueing into where we are now, a free-floating society. The motto of the modernistic order was, you tell me, I want to learn, tell me. But now I want to be involved. I think that's a good thing. Okay, The stimulus, that is, what stimulates my mind and my thinking, it's very logical, but I will need some experience. Okay, Learning style, Okay, tell me. Particularly young people today, they want to hear stories. And I think that's good, because who told the most stories in the Bible? Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Jesus says, well, you know, within 50 meters of the house in which you live, that, that's a neighbor. No, he doesn't. He says, this man was going down to Jericho. Okay. And he didn't even answer the question, who was my neighbor? He says, who was the neighbor? And the guy, he, they hated Samaritans. Jesus was always pulling the racial card. Right? It's the good Samaritan, not the good Jew who saved the Samaritan. It's the good Samaritan who saved the Jew. And that Jewish man who'd been, who had been beaten and left for dead and robbed, he, if he were conscious, he would not have let that Samaritan even touch him. And yet his compassion and his love overflowed to serve him. And when Jesus says, who was the neighbor? The guy couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said, uh, the guy that helped him. Okay. Stories. Powerful stories. You need to know Stories. Read Philip Yancey. You've got amazing, what's so amazing about grace? Story after story after story of grace there. You should be, you, if you hear me speak a lot, I'll tell some stories, and I get a lot of them from Philip Yancey, his books, because he admits he's a storyteller. He told me once, he said, the pen is my pulpit. And when I find stories, God allows me to put them together so that they're redemptive. 
and transformative. You need to have a lot of stories. Write them down. Categorize them. Think about them. Because that become, can become the tools. That can become the tools. The highest values in the past were truth and integrity. Now it's tolerance and choice. True? It really is. The highest, the highest value in our cultures today is to choose. To choose who you are, how you want to identify yourself, to choose what kind of ketchup you're going to... I mean, we like choice. We love choice. God gave us choice. He could have made it so that we didn't. Because love requires the ability to choose. If you can't choose, you can't love. And God took a risk in creating a world where he let those created in his image and likeness choose. Because not only do we have the ability to choose him, but the ability not to choose him. There are 3.5, 3.6 billion men in the world. Lynn chose me out of all of those guys. I'm special. And that's because, seriously, that's, that's, a, that's a behind the choice, isn't it? That's just lovely. Salvation is a point in time. Do you remember? I remember when I got saved. I do. I do. I'm sitting there with bad pizza in my belly, listening to this guy speak. But for a lot of young people today, it, it may be a time when you choose to go that particular direction, but being, salvation is a way of life. The extreme tendency in, in modernism was to become legalistic. Follow these rules and you'll be okay. Here it's very liberal. To love everybody, to care for everybody, and so on, and don't get into the details. The old order of worship is, okay, here's what we do. At 9.03, we begin the prelude, okay? At 9.04 and 30 seconds, we're going to stand up. You know, uh, It's very fluid. Very fluid. Very fluid in this church, I think, as well. The authority is hierarchical, and then uh, this is just giving you how things have changed. And so what does this mean in how we interact with people? Well, it should give us insight. If we're going to understand the times, understand the times so we know what we should do. And this is helpful for us. Throughout, throughout history, throughout the uh, creation of humanity, actually, there have been three ways that people have taken in information to, to derive knowledge and truth. Okay? The first is revelation. Revelation from God. Or in the past, if you're in Rome or Greece, it would be the gods. The gods are telling us what everything is about. It's outside of ourselves. It's a revelation beyond the world. The second is reason. And the third is experience. That's how we learn. That's how we find out what's true and so on. And the classic philosophers, for example, the pre-Socratic philosophers and the Socratic philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle and others, they thought reason was the highest, the ability to, to derive arguments, to understand what's going on around you. Aristotle was much more of a scientist, okay? So he took reason and took experience with it. He would collect rocks and say, you know, these rocks are alike, collect plants, these plants are alike. He began the whole idea of taxonomy, how things grow and how things have been formed and so on. And that's how it all worked. And for the most part, that dominated and really until the Renaissance. Or how do you say Renaissance in that? Renaissance. Renaissance. Okay, Renaissance. It's like Nissan. Is that it? Nissan. Mazda. Mazda. Okay. The revelation, reason, and experience. Okay. And 
Once we got into the Renaissance, men began to realize, people began to realize that maybe as we understand how the world works, because this was a scientific revolution, right? You had Kepler and you had Copernicus and everybody's beginning to realize, you know what? This is not an incredible thing. In fact, though, the sun does not revolve around the earth. We are, you know, all of these things made us realize, hey, we can understand the world. We understand why things work, then gravity, etc. So people began to think just because they knew how the universe works, there's no need to understand why. So once we knew how, in fact, uh, the Marquis de Laplace wrote a 10-volume work called Celestial Mechanics, describing how the universe works. Never once did he mention God. And Napoleon, this is early 1800s, Napoleon read a volume of it and said, this is beautiful. Uh, but you never once mentioned the author of the universe. To which Laplace, the scientist, replied, I have no need of that hypothesis. Now, if you're doing science and you're studying how it works, you could say, well, it works for a scientist and it works for a Christian. It's the same thing. The Christian assumes there's our God and the scientist doesn't. But it's the same, there's the same rules, right? And, um, and that's important to recognize. So what they did was they got rid of revelation. We don't need God anymore. We don't need the scriptures anymore. All we need is reason and experience. And that's what the scientific method is, isn't it? It's reason and experiments. They come up with a hypothesis and they go into the laboratory or they go wherever they do and they test it. So they're learning more about the universe. Reason and experience dominated the Renaissance. No need for God. And here you have that classic split between science and religion that exists today, which is so silly because some of the greatest scientists ever, some of the greatest science right now are believers. Nobody seems to catch that, however. Then we moved into the postmodern where reason got jettisoned. It doesn't matter. All that really matters is my experience, myself, my feelings. Okay. Used to be science dominated everything. And we could look at our genetics, we could look at our DNA, we could look at everything about us and determine who we were and what we were. Now, science gets in the way of me saying who I am. I may have an X and Y, but I want to, I want to identify as a woman or something like that. Get rid of science because who cares? By and large now, that's the world we live in, is that personal choice, personal experience, and so on are far more important than anything else. The only truth that matters is my truth. The only truth that matters is what I experience. I've had people tell me over and over and over again, as I bring up something from history, they say, well, that, that, was, that was 30 years ago, who cares? And it's true, that's the approach. So in our postmodern slash modern uh, culture now, we, are, we face that. So it's difficult to say the Bible says, when people say, Bible says, who cares about that? So how do you share Christ and his word in that kind of a culture? And we'll talk more about that. And we talk a lot about it at the Colson Fellows Program. So engaging the cultural moment, getting it right. What we need is a proactive, personal, biblical, and culturally aware apologetic of the Christian worldview. I notice I don't say culturally relevant. I say culturally aware. 
We don't need to be relevant. They are not the agenda. They don't set the rules. God does. God. We've been in this state in our culture and cultures many, many times. In fact, this uh, G.K. Chesterton, I think it's five times G.K. Chesterton brings up that people thought Christianity was dead throughout history. And it wasn't. 100,000 people come to Christ every single day around the world. 30,000 of them Muslims. Every day. You know, isn't that awesome? And, and he's not asking our permission or our advice. He's just doing it, okay? And most of it is outside the Western world. And so people are just giving up. Well, the Western world's gone. I don't think the Western world's gone. There's too many of us. I think the Spirit of God is present, active, and there's a sheer movement. And so there's something going on in Australia spiritually. There really is. So we're going to ignite hope. We are going to ignite hope. And it doesn't have to be huge. One committed person is far more effective than a thousand who are only interested. Getting it right. All right. So let's talk about these three. The idea of revelation, I think, is, is important. We talk about the, narr the Christian narrative, the, th the worldviews. And a worldview simply is a story. That's all it is. It's a story of every how everything came together and how it's progressing and where it's going. I'm going to talk about that a little bit tomorrow morning at church. It is tomorrow morning, right? Okay. okay. Yeah, what, what day is it? Yeah. But the beautiful reality of the Christian narrative is the story, the story, that every story you ever hear is derived. Every movie, every television show, every book is a derivative of the story that we find ourselves in. Creation, fall, oh, I forgot my Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Walk out with my well, I've got my Bible actually on my phone and on my iPad and everything else, but I wanted to hold it. Okay. In the Bible, for example, of course, Pastor Zoe has her Bible. <laughs> and it's Greek. Oh, wait a minute. Upside down. Okay. <laughs> the Bible opens. The Bible opens with creation. In the beginning, God created everything. It's not long before the second chapter. The second act in the drama is what? Okay, the fall. I have it up on the screen just in case you want to. Okay. Where, where does this occur? What chapter? Chapter 3. And the fall, of course, gets right at the heart of God, allowing us to choose. Allowing us to choose. We chose not to follow. Say, so, well, no, they chose Adam and Eve. I don't want to follow them. Well, yes, you would. You do the same thing, and we continue to do the same thing. And what happened then, of course, was the beauty and the, and the perfection and the innocence of all of the things that God had created were spoiled. This was no longer the land of the living. This became the land of the dying. Yeah. Things rot, rust, decay, 
die. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Some of you recognize that phrase, don't you? It's not the way it's supposed to be. And we see the outworking of it through the Old Testament. The horrors of the wars, the horrors of the rapes, the horrors of every kind of, of natural disaster, human disaster, and so on. The death after death after death. Why? Because, because of our sin, God had to curse. It's an awkward word, but curse the snake. He cursed the ground. He even cursed ourselves as we tried to live out in this world that's broken. And you see it, it played out over and over again. In fact, you get to the last chapter of the Old Testament, which is what? The prophet Malachi. You say Malachi here? Okay. I'm trying to get it. Malachi. And you look at the last word of the last chapter, of the last verse of the English Old Testament, it's the word curse. It's still there. It's still there. In fact, the Masoretes, the uh, Jewish scholars, they would, did not like their prophetic tables to end up with the word curse. So they went back up later, earlier in the book, and took out a verse and put it at the end. If you have a Hebrew Old Testament, you go, oh, look, they did that. Okay? They're not adding to the scriptures. They're just repeating. But then you get to the New Testament, and of course, things begin to change. Redemption. Redemption was prophesied, you know, in Genesis chapter 3. It's going to bruise your head. You'll bruise his heel. And then, of course, we find redemption found in the person of Jesus Christ. His death, his blood shed for us, grace that would just poured out, and so on. And then we begin to see it working out until we get to the final, which is the restoration. Notice those two re-words. It's hearkening. A reword means you're going doing something again, okay? And that's what salvation really is. We're going back. It's not like we are going ahead, but we're going back to something that was before, okay? Okay? And that's what's happening. And then you get to the last chapter of the book, the last chapter of God's revelation to us literally the revelation in chapter 22 where he's talking about the, the, in a poetic way and in somewhat of a real way too what, what we're going to be experiencing in the future we talk about going to heaven but heaven comes down if you're aware of that new heaven new earth God's going to continue to create things it's just amazing and then as he's giving us this picture he says this in verse 3 and there was no longer any curse it's gone it's gone that's a story. And that's a good story. It's the story. And every, very bit, thank you. And every, every story that's been told, every movie, is, fits in there. If it's a horrible, horrible, tragic, then it's, 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 a, it's a sign of the fall. If it's a comedy, it is the redemption. Because that's really, the word comedy does not mean funny. It just means you start here, you go down here, and you come back up. Okay? And that's why the, the, the old plays of, of uh, Shakespeare, they're called comedies. Not really all that funny, although they are, but nevertheless what it means is there's something that happens that brings it back up. Every story is derivative of that story. That's why we love stories so much. That's why we love stories so much. And what's interesting is that in, in the context of each one of these things, there are two scenes in each of these acts. God bless you. 
You're not getting sick, are you, Jack? You're okay? Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Darren's been a little ill, so don't sneeze that way. Okay. Okay. Creation. What we find in creation is that God created the universe. You know, scene one and all of it. And then a special creation for humanity. We are unique. God created us in his image and likeness. We love beauty. We love truth. We love goodness. We love love. Animals don't. We do. One of my favorite stories is, one of my top 200 favorite stories is um, uh, when I was, we were serving at Bryan College. I was a president there. And on Sunday afternoons, a lot of students would come over and we'd watch football, American football. And um, we'd have food. Sometimes we'd have food, but we'd usually go out and get it. But watching the Dallas Cowboys, halftime, 4.30 in the afternoon, four of the guys on the basketball team, let's, let's go get some pizza. So these big guys got into my little car and we're going up and it's, it's in the mountains there of Tennessee. We're coming up as we came to the top of a mountain. Um, one of the guys said, stop. And I slammed on the brakes. What? What? And they all piled out and they were looking over the Cumberland Plateau and the sun was setting and the sky was on fire. And we just stood there and went, whoa, you, you know, right? And you do that when sometimes the morning sun comes up and the sky's on fire. It's beautiful. I saw a deer. I saw several squirrels and some birds. None of them were looking at the sky. But we were. We were overwhelmed by the beauty there. Now, I have a degree in mathematics and physics, so I was going to explain to them the refraction of the infrared light rays coming through. That's all they're really seeing. That's it. But see, science can tell us what's going on, but the impact it has on us. There's something about beauty. Nothing is beautiful in and of itself, but what it does is it points you to something beyond itself of what beauty is. There's a sense of beauty that's found only in God that he put in our hearts, and we crave beauty. I believe, one, one writer said, and I think he may be right, that art is going to save the world. Isn't it Interesting. Because some people get so turned inward that sometimes art will let them transcend themselves. That's how God made us. We want truth. We want beauty. We want love. We crave them. We crave them. And I think God is leading a lot of people. That's why if you've got an inclination toward art and so on, I think God's going to be raising up so many believers to do things in art and music and literature. The fall. When we read about the fall of humanity... We know that something happened beforehand that we don't know anything about. Where did the serpent come from? Where did that sense of evil come from? Where did that rebellion against God already exist? How did it exist, right? We get some inclination in Isaiah and Ezekiel about Lucifer falling, you know, and uh, wanting to be like the most high God. But even that is somewhat sketchy. We're not exactly sure what happened, but we know that there was a fall before we fell. And in the sense of redemption, God worked through the nation Israel. He gave laws. He gave um, directions of how they were supposed to live in the land. But all this was a shadow of the, what Jesus was going to do and who he was going to be. And the restoration, I am saved, but I will be saved. 
I have salvation, but I will have salvation. All those things. This already not yet perspective of who we are and what's going to happen. So when we think about the great story that we can tell, the great narrative that we have, that we're living through, this is the truth by which every other truth is measured. Reason. The idea, of course, that God gives us so much opportunity to be apologetic in a good way with people who have questions. Stephen Fry was asked this question. If you could talk to God, what would you say? And he said, bone cancer in children? What is that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect the capricious, mean-spirited, stupid God who creates the world, a world that is so full of injustice and pain? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous utterly monstrous and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, that is become an atheist, banish him, life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. This is on an Irish the TV program, an uh, interview program with, uh, oh gosh, Irish, Anglican, I forget, I forget. But, but, so what would you say to Stephen Fry? I'm not sure. I don't think he is. How many people who have suffered so much and struggled so much say, how could you do this? He has said nothing there that you don't find coming out of the mouth or the pen of David, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, and Job. It's one of the beautiful things about Christianity is that in the scriptures itself, you have faithful people shaking their fists at God. Why? You know that wonderful passage, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. We quote that verse, but the next verse says, I'm panting for you because where are you? Where are you? The beautiful thing is on this side of the resurrection, we're going to struggle. It's going to be hard at times. We'll have periods of doubt and, and uncertainty. That's why we come back again and again and let God fill us and remind us that one day this veil is going to be lifted and we'll, we'll be fully known as we are known. And so Stephen Fry, to sit down and talk with him, that's one of the things we're doing more and more in the Colson Fellows program. Here's, here's how you respond to somebody who struggles with the problem of evil. And um, because they deserve an answer. And he wants to talk to God, and maybe God can use us to talk, talk to him. I was fascinated yesterday when Mark Dury talked about um, the lady Susanna, oh, I forget her, the, the children's book writer. I forgot her last name. Yeah, she's, oh, she was, she was Scottish, McDonald, McFarlane, Susanna McFarlane. How she was a flaming liberal, I mean, not flaming liberal, atheist and became a believer. And uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I do not like Twitter. It's, it's uh, only a very small percentage of people in the world get on Twitter, but everybody believes if Twitter says it is true. But here's a fellow whose name is B.L. Zabub. B.L. Zabub. 
And but he's, he's arguing that Jesus Christ never really existed, okay? And he says, like, show in a repeatable, verifiable way that God exists using the scientific method. As for the DNA, you would have to not only produce it, but show that it was for Jesus of Nazareth and the DNA was from someone who was divine. So they were, he was arguing with somebody about Jesus being God and existing. And then he goes on to say, Somebody says, but there are stories about Jesus. And so on. says, no, there are stories of him being resurrected, just like many other fictional gods. And you don't know that he exists. You merely believe. Knowledge requires evidence and reasoning. Boomer, whoever Boomer is. Okay, Boomer. Okay. Sorry, but your opinion is wrong. And he says, my statement about knowledge is true by definition. My statement about Jesus is the most likely truth given the complete lack of comment about him in the historical record. Now, he gets away with that. The reality is, I think, have you ever heard of uh, Suetonius and Tacitus and Josephus where Jesus is mentioned? Um, but nobody's going to look up. Nobody's going to try to find out. And as a result, there will be a lot of people who will take what he says as being gospel true because it's on the internet, you know, because of that. It deserves a response. And, you know, we need to pray for this guy yeah. in, in a positive way. So reason is important. We need to have reasonable responses to people who will say things that are just flat out wrong. Richard Dawkins is great for doing that. He'll just throw things out there and people say, what's well, Richard Dawkins? And he, he criticizes Christians for not doing anything important. You got, you got TV shows and you raise money. Big deal. Why don't you go out and, and uh, discover something in science or something? And uh, so I simply replied that in uh, the hundred and some years they have a record of the Nobel Prize that two-thirds of all prizes have been delivered to Christians and then 20% 22% to Jews and in physics of all things there have been over a hundred in the last year, uh, century or so that have been believers winning the Nobel Prize in physics I think that's pretty good but see he gets away saying that and nobody answers I think he knows better now but he never, never corrects himself Paul Gould, this is going to be a textbook next year, by the way, in the program. Paul Gould's book entitled Cultural Apologetics. It is so good. And we're going to get him involved in doing webinars with us. Notice he says, reason guides us on the quest for truth. The conscience leads us to goodness. And the imagination transports us toward beauty. This is also why we have intellectuals, prophets, and artists. They can perform a priestly duty leading us if we allow them toward the ultimate object of our soul's longing, Jesus Christ, the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. Yeah. Um, we were having dinner at Leanne's last night and Phil's. It was a lot of fun. It was good. We laughed a lot, didn't we? Oh, my gosh. Um, but we were talking about this, and I said, what, what are your favorite animated movies? And everybody began to name various animated movies. And whenever I ask that question, by the time you get everybody's favorite movie, well, I like I liked In and Out, or I like Monsters Inc., or I like Toy Story, you know, or I like Wally. That was that was really funny. And um, you find out that the majority of those they mention are, are Pixar. 
And I said, did you know that the guy who is the creative genius behind all of these is a guy named Peter Docter, D-O-C-T-E-R. You will look him up. He's an incredible believer. He writes most of these stories. He even voices some of the characters. In the, the movie In and Out, his daughter was one of the little girls. So people will look at animated movies and they'll talk about the depth of the Pixar, Pixar movies. And he's not explicit about his faith, but he's always got that narrative of redemption. That narrative of helplessness. That narrative of family coming together. And you don't notice it. Even if you remember the one up, you know, with the same thing. He, he explores different avenues of life, takes the biblical narrative, embeds it in there, and it's got such depth. It draws people, even that aren't Christian, to say, that is so good. They don't know why. It's because that narrative, that narrative is the one that resonates in their hearts. So it's people like him. He's an artist. People like him that God is using to set people up for the fuller revelation of truth. Now, I don't think you can say, Woody led me to Christ, but, but you still get the idea, right? You still get the, and we need Christians doing that, writing great books, making great movies, and so on. <clears throat> All right, and experience. Uh, and I think the experience is important here. Um, for us, for you as a Christian, we, we need to know and explain the Christian worldview narrative. And by that, I mean just Christ in general. And again, people are more ready than you think to hear that. And secondly, to be Christ-like, portraying genuine kindness and concern. God bless you. A life affirming both the truth and the effectiveness of the Christian worldview. They need to see it lived out. It's, we can't just wag our finger and, and, and drop the microphone. They need to see that it works because it does. Which means you need to be about help letting, it, letting it work in your life, you know? Yeah. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Making the best use of the time. That's why I think being aware all the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt. I like that seasoned with salt. But we know what he's getting at. You need to use salty language. Now, not that, that word. I mean, don't be boring. Don't use words they don't understand. But, you know, when you salt the oats, <clears throat> you know what it means to salt the oats. You make people thirsty. But the way that you talk and the, the way that you uh, express yourself and the desires and the excitement that you show makes people thirsty. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I love that last phrase. You are gracious. You are cl not clever, but you know what I mean. And as you, com as you uh, communicate. So that you know how to answer each person. Notice how God comes down to each person. How do I answer the person in front of me? Sometimes I have to talk to them to find out where they are so that I can meet that need. <clears throat> uh, I'm meeting with two guys at the coffee shop. There's a coffee shop in our little town called The Library. And um, because there's a university there. And uh, these two guys, they're 50-ish, and um, they are really into the transcendental worldview. They believe that the universe is there and that the universe speaks through them because that they're, they're coming to that understanding. Very transcendental view. And uh, it's a long story about how I happened upon them. So I meet with them 
as well as another Colson fellow, and we talk through issues. And they, because they love it. Last time we talked about what is truth. And um, it's really neat because they're, they're all pretty staid in their views. And I don't argue with them. I, they just describe what's happened in their life. And I say, well, you know, from a biblical perspective, here's what's happening. You know, he came to this realization that life is more than just himself. And the universe spoke to him and so on. And I said, well, from a Christ-centered perspective, it's this way. You know, most of us, because of our lives, because of our sinfulness and so on, we get to the point to where we know want something more and God speaks. So from you say the universe, but it's God, the creator of the universe that's speaking. He goes, oh, never thought about that. And we talked about truth. I said, okay, let me give you an example. Raleigh, the city of Raleigh is the capital of North Carolina. It is. And he said, well, that's true, that's true, but not if you live in India. I said, oh, no, no, it's still the capital of North Carolina. He said, well, they don't even know about it. I said, but it's still true. He goes, oh, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. So, so anyway, we're not arguing. We laugh a lot. But the reality is I'm trying to answer each person without trying to win an argument. I want to be faithful as I describe the goodness and the grace and the story of God. And it's delightful because they're not, they don't want to argue because I'm not arguing with them. They go, oh. <clears throat> and I let them talk, by the way. I let them talk. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, Paul tells Timothy in his last letter he wrote before he died. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to most people. No, kind to everyone. <laughs> kind to everyone. Able to teach. That you need to be equipped. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil, no matter what they say, what happens around you. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. That God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They will want that. Perseverance, investing weeks, months, years in your conversations. I've been talking with one fellow. Um, he's become one of my good, good friends. His name is Cal. Uh, for, gosh, it's nine, almost nine years now, babe. Wow. He's Buddhist. And, um, and he's Irish. Go figure. Um, but uh, I love Cal. He loves me. He was in, he had uh, an owner of a company, and we talk all the time. And we don't talk all the time lately, though. But um, it's just neat. I talk about Christ. He even calls me up to ask me to pray for him. And uh, I was in Boston, and uh, where, where where our company was, and um, I was talking with someone else, and I saw Cal sitting over there with one of the VPs. And what had happened is one of the VPs said, I hear you're Buddhist. Tell, tell me about that. So he took him to lunch to tell him about being, Buddhism, about being Buddhist. And I saw him, and I waved him my way out. He said, Bill, come over here. He had me sit down. He says, now, I told him about Buddhism. You need to hear Bill talk about Christianity. It's awesome. So, so go ahead and tell him about Christianity. <laughs> Isn't that great? But so that's, sometimes it takes forever to get there. One guy, the guy who was a CEO of this company, I've been talking with him for 12, 12 years. We pray every morning together now. He struggles a lot with life and um, he's doing pretty well. He's uh, married and has a little girl. He got married when he was 41. 
Yeah. Um, he had a lot of um, addictions as well. But it's taken, you, you just, sometimes we want it to be just a, a comment. Boom, we're done. <clears throat> but sometimes you're there for a long, long time. Um, let me give you an example here. <clears throat> Thought I'd do a cartoon break here. Mm. All right, you got evangelist. Evangelist, let's say that there is an evangelist. <clears throat> we'll call him. We'll call them Caleb and Zoe. Okay, <clears throat> these evangelists. And they have this incredible ministry online that they speak publicly and everything. And through their ministry, a thousand people come to Christ every single day. That's impressive. People make a decision for Christ. There they are. <laughs> so excited coming to Christ. Making a decision for Jesus. But then they have regular people. You notice the guy on the, on the right is a regular guy. He's got the shirt. <laughs> okay. And these, I mean, who knows these people? And what they do is, uh, they, they, I'm not saying, I've just got a girl and a guy up there just to give you an example. It just doesn't have to be a girl or it just doesn't have to be a guy. <clears throat> But what, what, the, what they do is they, they help lead somebody to Christ, and then they spend a year discipling them, meeting with them every week or every, maybe several times a week, teaching them the Word of God, teaching them how to pray, teaching them, answering questions, you know, helping them guide. The, the idea of being the follower and learner of Jesus. So, if we look at them, and of course, it's always got to be outside under the trees when you do your discipleship. <laughs> It's, it doesn't count <laughs> if it's inside. See, I used to do it at Cracker Barrel all the time, I mean restaurants, you know, but um, I still do. Actually. All right, so if we were to compare their ministries, you've got the evangelist and you've got the regular guy and regular gal. <clears throat> and let's look at it, let's put the numbers to it, all right? After the first year, 1,000 a day, there would be 365,000 people who had made a decision for Christ. Year two, 730. Year three, 1,095,000. Not counting for leap years. This is a leap year. You know that. Okay. And for the, uh, the people that are just the regular guys, they have each, you know, here's one guy and he leads another guy to Christ and they have a year together. That's two people. And the next year they both decide, let's lead somebody else to Christ and then they'll meet. And so after year two, there's four of them. And then after three years, they just split up, and there's eight of them, okay? Now, which of these pair are on TV and write the books and the radio and so on? Well, we get to year 10, the evangelists have led 365,000 people to make a decision, a public decision for Christ. But look what happened. You know, they're, they're up to 1,000 people, over 1,000 people. They're getting a disciple for a year. You get to year 23, they're about equal. I'm a math guy, it works. <laughs> this is called exponential growth. But notice, in my mind, what's, what, what really excites me is the quality of those 8,388,638. They've all been discipled. And the other eight million, you know, they made a decision, but 
has anything happened since then? And so my challenge for us is just because you think, well, I'm just ministering to this person, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. It does matter. And the infinite value of one person besides the reality, that's how the church grew in the early, in the early days. People winning them to Christ, discipling them, and then going on. And then finally, faith. Just the way we sang this this morning, that John Mark McMillan song always gets me. It's just awesome. Um, but knowing that God's spirit is at work. I mean, a lot of times I'm sitting talking to somebody about the Lord and everything, and I'm just so, I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about being clever and so on. And I need to realize that this is God at work. And if anything's going to happen in this person's life, it's because God does it, not me. Not me. And, and, but, but you got to be expectant as well. We have a tendency sometimes to you know, just say those words, but to be expectant. Okay, God. Okay, God. And when you do that, it is, uh, it is amazing. I've, I'll just men- mention this. I don't know if you saw this article. Uh, Nicholas Kristof is a fascinating writer. This is in the New York Times. And he pointed out last year was the best year in history of humanity. And uh, it got caught a lot of people by surprise. What? You know, you've got Donald Trump, please. You know, you've got all these things that don't look good for, for a lot of people. And, um, but he went through all the data, and I don't, I don't have, a, I didn't have all that here, but the data of the literacy in the world was like at 40% back in 1980-something, and now it's up in the 90%. Uh, much of the world that has clean water was down about 50% and now it's up almost 90%. I mean, all those important life, you know, quality of life things, boom, boom, boom. And a lot of it is because of faith-based groups having a vision. Disease, critical disease is gone. And I think Christians started all this because when you think about, well, let me ask you, when you think about diseases in the New Testament, and uh, what, what, or even the Old Testament, what, what disease jumps out at you? Leprosy. It was a growing dominant disease in the world then and continued on. But a strange thing happened among Christians as they began to, as they read the scriptures, they saw that Jesus was reaching out and touching lepers and healing them. You didn't, you didn't touch lepers. It's a bacterial disease. It's not a viral disease. It's a bacterial disease. And it's a horrible disease because what it does is it kills the, uh, the nerves. And you can't feel pain. And if you can't feel pain, then you can hurt yourself. You can be sweeping and you can lose a thumb. I mean, it happens. You can scratch your face and rip all the way through to your teeth. It sounds, no, you can't. Yes, you can. So when you see people with... With leprosy, not only do they have dark blotches, but they have parts of their body missing because of those things. Uh, they lose toes because they're wearing shoes that don't fit and so on. And so our Christians would gather these people together and embrace them and love them. And so many of them came to Christ. It's just an amazing, amazing story. But by bringing them together and ministering them, because they were outcasts in society, let's bring them together and we will love them. All over Europe, all over Asia, believers were doing that in the early centuries, and it continues to today. 
so that leprosy almost disappeared. There are still cases of it, but not the 20, 30 million that came every year, but maybe it's in the thousands they're cared for. And you will read the, read the text and they'll say, Christians basically brought about the, the end of leprosy as a horrible, horrible disease to the world. That's what Christians do. That's what Christians do. And so when I think about all that, I get very excited because we have a great legacy in our world. And um, I think this is, a, this is what we want to do, right? This is what we want to do. And you do that by loving and caring and sharing in ways that I think are so, so meaningful. Speaking of C.S. Lewis, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. You say this at the end of World War II, toward the end of World War II. Blessed truth, right? So when we think of this cultural moment, when it comes to representing Christ, I said, you know, we're talking about engaging the culture. I think we've been doing it wrong. But the reality to serve, to love, to care, and watch God open up doors all over the place for us. And we are equipped. We are ready. We are confident as we describe to them that incredible narrative of hope from the God of hope for us. And I think that by and large, that's what we're called to do. It's called to be. Um, I shared with some of you, and I'll, I'll, I'll close with this and see if we have some questions. Um, our church in uh, where we live, we live in Mars Hill, North Carolina, and our church is just a little south of there. And the idea of uh, came to our pastor and all of us as we were thinking and praying, and I was just very excited about this, to take a five-mile radius around our church, and how can we meet every need? There's not that many of us. There's probably 300 on the rolls. How can we meet every need? Well, first of all, you've got to know what the needs are. So we went and talked to the schools and the prisons. There are prisons there. Uh, the social services, the police, etc. Everybody said, so how can we help? And they needed a lot of help. And so we, die, we were able to dive in and do everything from providing food for children who don't have it over the weekends. They can eat at school, but they go home and their parents are addicted to drugs or it's a single mom and she's not all there. And they don't eat until they get back. So we fill backpacks with food and these kids take it home. Lynn's been pretty involved in that. But what also, this also happens, we make sure we've got enough food. So uh, a couple times a year, our pastor will preach a 10-minute sermon and send everybody to the store because we're to replenish our supplies for the kids and other people. So people will go and buy food and bring it back, stack it up. 
you'd never get a 10-minute sermon out of Caleb. You know that. Or I think what you should do, though, is let him start preaching, and after 10 minutes, just leave and go to the store. And then come back with your stuff, because he'll still be preaching. <laughs> By the way, I love, I love Pastor Caleb's sermons. I, I, I've watched a number of them, actually, so that's good. But, you know, when we think about doing it differently, living differently, in this cultural moment, we as Christians, we don't want to be stand out and say, look at us. We want to say, look at him. And we do it by serving in that way, yeah. being equipped. And I'm excited about that. Okay, we've got about seven, eight minutes before the break. Is that, am I right? Yep. Okay. And I love it when you say tea, you don't mean just tea. <laughs> I mean, you got all this. When we say, would you like, let's have tea, you go, you just get tea. And, and you guys have like, I just ate breakfast a few hours ago, and I think, <laughs> think lunch is about an hour. But oh, all right, all right, you know. <laughs> I say that my family's Scottish, and so we have tea is pretty, pretty important. Thing. Okay, <laughs> questions? Any comments? You were talking about yesterday about Paul and his ministry and uh, getting into the shoes, if you like, of those he was attempting to reach. Can you elaborate on that a bit more, perhaps? Um, no, well, say, say that again. I, I, uh, Paul's, Paul's ministry and his approach to getting into the shoes of the people he was trying oh, to reach yes. living in the community. Actually, we'll talk a little bit about that this afternoon, if that's okay. Um, <laughs> the, um, I'm following up. I, I, I'll, I'll try to get some good examples. I, do, I, mean, I have some good examples of that, but... Uh, the, the passage that Nick is referring to is 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, uh, I make myself a slave to everyone. That passage has really changed the way I look at ministry. Um, the word is, is not just servant. It's not diakonos. It is the word doulos. It's, a, it's the bond slave. So every person he meets, every person he comes across, he enslaves himself to them. If you can. So, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I want to get inside their heart and their head because I want to build a bridge to Jesus for them. And when I do that, it's different than I'm going to tell you something. But what is your need? It's like, how do I respond to each one? And uh, in order to do that, you know, it's interesting. Apologetics is always a response, to an answer to people. And too many times it's us telling people. So you get to know them a little bit, even if it's just a, a casual acquaintance, find out some things and so on. And there's some always connection with somebody, you know, and uh, uh, and then if nothing else, to be able to share your own story. Uh, frequently, when you ask somebody their story or talk, talk about their family and so on, and because I was a president of a university, Christian university, I could just say that I'm president of a university, Cedarville University, it's a Christian school, and this is what we do. And if there's any interest in that at all, I'll get a, a, a question about that. You can talk about your involvement in uh, church. 
um, and in the ministry. I wouldn't say I go to church because that doesn't always make some people feel comfortable because all of a sudden they'll stop cussing and they'll, you know, clean up, get rid of their beard. Oh, really? You know. Um, but uh, to um, to talk with them about serving Christ in some ways or something. I'll, I'll even talk about, you know, yeah, I was uh, getting ready to go in the space program and uh, God got a hold of my life and just changed. I wanted something higher than being an astronaut, you know. And, um, uh, and, the, and but people are, nobody I've ever talked to has been offended, ever, ever. They find it interesting or they just don't respond to it at all. In which case I shake off my shoes and, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> I, I pray for them as they sit there. But anyway, we'll talk some more about how all that relates. Hi, Doctor. Um, just your view on the role of tech giants and their influence on society, oh. uh, especially with um, you hear Facebook accounts being censored and things like that. Yeah. Um, th I think the jury is still out on how tech giants are going to be uh, regulated. Part of the problem is that they're, they're providing a service like the electric company and the gas company and the water company, but they're doing it by getting inside our bedrooms and watching everything that we do. And that, that makes it just really, really weird. And Mark Zuckerberg used to be a huge hero. Now he's this satanic figure, you know, trying to get his own. And um, uh, my, under, my, my perspective is, you know, it's up to us how much information we give out up to a point because they're going to get it somehow anyway, you know. And um, I, I, I'm not even sure how to answer that other than that's, that's the world we live in now. If you, if you, uh, it's fascinating if you go back to 19, gosh, 30. I'm trying to remember when uh, 1984 was written. Um, uh, but he's predicted the big brother. Right, you know, and that's what we have. And it's not just the government, though; it's everybody. But the government's starting to pull things off, and it's, it's a big, big issue. Of course, it's been that way in parts of uh, the world, you know, in Muslim countries and in some parts of the former Soviet Union. Um, they knew everything. So, but if it is what it is, then we'll just serve our Lord anyway, you know. And uh, but we we must be very circumspect. Everything you write, every Twitter tweet, every everything, just imagine and then know that everybody in the world can read it. You know, you just need to realize that. And some people still do the stupidest things, and they put all this stuff online. It's like, ah, I didn't intend for anybody else. <laughs> So that, and that everything that we write is honoring to God as well, and so on. But um, I, I wish we had some power over that. God does, of course. Um, so, sorry, I can't. There, there are some several books written on that issue. Um, I'm more concerned about our kids carrying their smartphones around all the time and it constantly telling them what to believe and what to do. That, to me, is the worst part.